Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Lord, I ask you to open our hearts, open our minds, give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Now, I believe you're in a series going through the book of Acts. Is that correct? And what are you up to today? Acts chapter 9. Well, how about we start in Acts chapter 9 and see where we go from there. Acts, the ninth chapter. And, And let me present a scenario to you first. And tell me if this sounds basically right to you, or if something's a little wrong. Saul of Tarsus was a religious Jew who was persecuting Christians. Then he had a radical conversion experience and became a Christian himself, and his name was changed to Paul. Does that sound pretty reasonable? Actually, it's not true. Saul of Tarsus was a religious Jew, but he was not persecuting Christians because the term didn't exist yet. You won't encounter that until you get to Acts the 11th chapter. Not only so, but Paul did not convert to Christianity because there was no such thing called Christianity. And he didn't get a new name, Paul, because from birth, he would have had at least two names, a Greek name and a Hebrew name, if not a Latin name. Also, from birth, in Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking circles, and Jewish circles that spoke that language, he would be Shaul, Saul. And in Greek-speaking circles, he would be Paulus, Paul. So he was always Saul, Paul, from his earliest days. He wasn't persecuting Christians because there was no such thing as Christians at that time. He was persecuting fellow Jews who believed in Jesus. And he himself did not convert to Christianity. Instead, he encountered Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and became a follower of Jesus, the Messiah, and was still known as Saul when he was in certain circles. But because the book of Acts sees him going to the Gentile Greek world, he gets called Paul later in the book. You say, why does that matter? Well, because often we have fundamental misconceptions. And when we come to the text, we bring those misconceptions with us. And myself, as a Jewish follower of Jesus, I had a certain understanding of who Jesus was. In fact, I remember it was shortly before I turned 13 years old, because I remember where I was with some of my other Jewish friends, and we were in Hebrew school, and we were getting ready to be bar mitzvahed. It's kind of like the rite of confirmation in the church, you know, when you're 13. Uh, But we weren't religious, so it was not a heavy education. And I I had heard somehow that Jesus was Jewish. But I didn't know if it was accurate or not. It was the days before the internet where everything on the internet is accurate. (laughs) So I, I just heard this, and I asked, my friends, was Jesus Jewish? And some said, yeah, I heard he was. Others said, no, not Jewish. So I came up with a joke. I thought it was really funny. I said, when did he become Catholic? After his resurrection? <laughs> but for a Jewish person, Jesus is the God of another religion, the, the, the head of the Catholic Church, the, the God of the Christians, and, and he's largely unrelated to Jews. Well, he may, he may be started Jewish, but then he, he went astray. But what's fascinating, as you get into the book of Acts, when you get to the 15th chapter, as, as, as you will at some point, I'm sure, <laughs> as, as you get to the 15th chapter, there's something really interesting taking place. Because all these Gentiles, all these non-Jews have come to faith. And there's a dispute among the Jewish believers. Because remember, they're they're all Jews to start. Peter and John and, you know, these were fellows with names like Yochanan and Shimon 
and Matityahu and Yaakov, very Jewish names. All the first disciples were Jews. All the first believers were Jews. Now you have this massive influx of Gentiles who are now believing in the Jewish Messiah. So they have a, a big debate. Do these Gentiles have to become circumcised and become Jews to believe in the Jewish Messiah? Or can they come as they are? And the conclusion was they could come as they are. So that was the big question in the early church. Can you be a Gentile and believe in Jesus without becoming a Jew? As church history went on, and the church became so Gentile, it became totally foreign to Jews. And the thing completely flipped. Can you be a Jew who believes in Jesus without becoming a Gentile? I have friends of mine, when they came to faith decades ago, Jewish friends, that someone gave them a pork sandwich to prove that they were really saved. <laughs> Eat pork and then we'll believe you're really saved. I guess down here it would be some, some kind of shellfish you'd eat, right, <laughs> to prove you're really saved. I have Jewish friends of mine, when they came to faith, it was a revelation to them that Christ meant Messiah. They thought that Jesus was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. His last name was Christ. So what's happened is the church shifted so far from its roots that it became something that a Jewish person can't relate to or imagine. So I say all that just to lay a foundation here. And we read in verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So let's just go back to the 8th chapter. In the 7th chapter, remember Stephen, Jewish man, godly, spirit-filled Jewish man, is stoned to death. And, and it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. So Saul is, is the, the ringleader here. He's the one that's stirring up all the opposition. And you know, sometimes this happens in cities and countries and regions that you've got one really aggressive bad apple. And they're stirring up trouble. And they're the ones kind of spearheading the attack. And when that person gets born again, everything changes. And we know that Stephen, as he's dying, prays, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Just as Jesus prays on the cross for forgiveness, Stephen is praying for those who are killing him. And Jesus had taught his disciples to pray for those who persecute you. So I'm quite sure that the early believers must have really been praying for Saul. He must have been at the top of the list. And I just want to pause here to say that Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 that even though he was a blasphemer, even though he was a violent man, he's responsible for the deaths of other believers. Think of that. God had mercy on him because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. And God had mercy on him to make him an example as the worst of sinners. That if Jesus could have mercy on him, Jesus could have mercy on anybody. So I, I want to stop here to say there are people that you're praying for that seem beyond hope, that seem to have gone too far, fallen too greatly into sin, but you never can underestimate the power of God to save. Amen. Amen. And, and one of my fondest memories among thousands of fond memories during the Brownsville Revival, was Friday night baptisms when we'd have maybe 25 or 30 people who came to faith or came back to faith through the revival. They would share their testimonies and get baptized. And some of them were utterly remarkable. But, but the ones I remember best, there'd be some really big guy, I mean a big hulking guy, start off, you know, he's all shaking up, he's crying, he'd say something like, hi, my name is Bubba. And, and I remember distinctly the, the first time I realized, I'd been in the South for like a year or two, before I realized that Bubba was actually a name. <laughs> and all of us who had moved to the South were like, did you know Bubba was a name? Yeah, I realized a week ago. We'd say I was here for a year, but you said it was a nickname. 
he's some big Bubba. I still remember when the guy said, my name's Bubba. I thought, Bubba's a name. Wow. So for all the Bubba's here, God bless you. Great name. And this guy, get, I mean, big guy, and he's got all kinds of, you know, skull tattoos and whatever. And say, you know, I, I'm in a jail. Just got out of jail. I was in jail for 15 years. I killed a man. I was a drug user. I beat up my wife. You know, just cry going through the whole thing. And, they, and they're, you know, it's, it's just terrible. I mean, glad you weren't stuck in an alley with this guy before he was saved. And then the famous line we hear time and again, but Mama kept praying. <laughs> so here's this massive guy. Mama's probably like four foot eight, you know. Mama kept praying. When, when God saved me, I, I was a real rebel. I wasn't just a heavy drug user as a teenager, but I, I was a rebel. And I started getting high at 14, was shooting heroin at 15, and got saved at 16. But I was known as Drug Bear or Iron Man because I would, could put these massive quantities of drugs in my body. You know, as a, as a foolish teenager, you boast in these destructive things. You think you're cool because of it. So that was my reputation, but, but I had a terrible temper and cut people up with my tongue. I was just a, a nasty, proud, mean-spirited person. And my two best friends played the band with them. I played drums, and they played guitar and bass. They got saved and started going to this little church, little Italian Pentecostal church, and I, I went to pull them out. I thought, this is stupid, you know, it's pulling our band, you know, you're not living the same way anymore, and you're going to threaten our band. And so I, I went to pull them out. And a young lady knew me from high school, and she wrote down, she was a new believer herself, she wrote down in her journal, Antichrist comes to church. That was my reputation. And I didn't look the way I looked now. I was, you know, I was a long-haired hippie rebel. My wife Nancy got saved a couple years after that. She was a Jewish atheist when we met God saved her. And some years later, I found a picture, an old picture of me before I was saved, and she started laughing. I said, you're laughing because I look like a woman. She said, no, I'm laughing because you look like an ugly woman. <laughs> but, but, but listen, something really interesting happened. Something really interesting. You see, I was boasting in my sin. I believe it was John Bunyan who said, first we practice sin, then we defend it, then we boast about it. I was in the boast about it stage. I boast about it stealing money from, from my own father. I, I, I boasted about breaking into a doctor's office with a friend or you're just stealing from other friends and doing crazy things, lying and and all the drug use, I boasted about it. And I'd lay in bed at night, high on one drug or another, thinking how cool I was. And then, suddenly, for no reason that I, I'm aware of, I start feeling miserable. The, the very things, literally, the very same things I was laying in bed, boasting about in my mind one night, the next night, I feel miserable about it. I want to crawl out of my skin. And I have no idea why. And because I didn't understand conviction of the Spirit, I didn't attribute it to prayer, God, anything. I just thought, well, these drugs are keeping me up at night. I need to switch drugs, do something else. And that's, all I, that's all I tried to do. But I couldn't get away from this. What I didn't know was that people were praying for me. And, and many years later, after I was a believer for years and years, I saw some of the, the folks from that, that first church and they were telling me, they said, oh yeah, we just got a burden to pray for you. We came that first time, we just got a burden to pray for you. One fellow had been in pastoral ministry for decades. His dad was one of the ones that greeted me at the door, a man in the 60s at that point. He said, you know, he started praying for you from that day and prayed for you every day the rest of his life. Wow. And this other young lady, she's younger than me, we got saved. Decades later, she said, yeah, we just prayed for you. We'd be in our homes, we'd be praying for you. We'd be at prayer meeting, we'd be praying for you. We'd be at church services, we'd be praying for you. And the Holy Spirit tracked me down. I, I want to encourage you. I feel specifically to encourage some of you that have given up praying for people because it's seen as too late or they're too far gone or they're just not listening. Go to God again. Maybe he'll give you fresh burden. 
Because you never know what God will do and who he'll save and how he'll save them. The man that I work with in India, Brother Yesupadam, dear close friend and one of the most amazing men of God I know on the planet. Humble servant, but a man of great spiritual authority in the, in the tribal regions near the city where he's based, about four or five hours out, tribal regions. There were thousands of villages, all of them. And when I first went there, they were all unreached. Now every single one of them has a congregation. They planted at least seven, 8,000 churches in that region. And then all kinds of incredible humanitarian work, orphans, widows, schools, right up through university, hospitals. And this man was an untouchable. This man was a lost soul. When he turned 60 some years back, the, the government actually honored him. Had a big birthday celebration and government officials came to honor him. This man was an untouchable. And when he was 11 years old, he became a Naxalite, which is a, a, a violent Maoist communist. He signed with his own blood to become a communist because he so hated the caste system. And he had to suffer just as an untouchable. He was too weak to work, so his, his parents sent him to school. And, and when everyone was getting water, the only way he could get it is he had to get on his hands and knees, and if water happened to fall between their hands or out of their lips, he would catch that and drink it. Found dying on the side of the road by a Canadian missionary when he was a boy because of severe malnutrition. This is how he grew up, so he hated the caste system. And then he got involved in terrorism. He, he was a violent man attacking the rich and stealing from the rich. And by the time he was 20, he was, he was a hopeless alcoholic. Atheist, alcoholic, Maoist communist. And that's when Jesus appeared to him, revealed his love for him. He got instantly, radically, dramatically born again went out on the street, started clapping his hands and to get people's attention. Have you heard? Started preaching the gospel. I want to encourage you to press in and pray for the worst of sinners. Maybe people you don't even know, God will lay on your heart to pray for them. You never know what happens. You never know how God can chase someone down. So back to Saul. He's still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So he's, he's energized. And he's angry. And he, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. That's a good way up north. He's, he wants to get... He's, he's after you. If you're a believer, he's after you. He asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way they described the, the first believers, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he is in the midst of being dead set on sinning. In his mind, he's doing God's service. John 16, Jesus tells his disciples, the day is coming when whoever kills you will think you're doing a service to God. That was Saul of Tarsus. Paul himself speaks of his Jewish people in Romans 10, said they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And a couple of years ago, I was in Jerusalem, and we were, we were doing some outreach videos, but educational as well. We were in a part of the city that had religious Jews and secular Jews, all kind of milling around, shopping in similar areas. And... We had a camera, a couple people with us, and we were interviewing people and said, listen, we are going to air these episodes on God TV. It's a Christian network, but we want to talk to you about what you believe about the Messiah and so on. So at the very least, Christian audience would hear from Jews in Israel about what they believe, and that would be very interesting. But the very best would be that we get into a dialogue, they'd want to hear more, and then we had some local believers who were going to talk to them or get their contact info and follow up. But we were forthright about who we were. Some people, however, thought that we were religious Jews and trying to deceive people. 
even though I wasn't, I you know, have a beard or some of the other outward accompaniments. We were in an area where it was appropriate to wear what you call a yarmulke, which we had on, but we were totally forthright what we were doing, why we were doing it, what it was airing for. Well, one guy came over to disrupt everything. He's with an anti-missionary group that's famous in Israel. So he starts yelling out, missionary, missionary! It's like a dirty word in Israel. It means like you're bribing people to believe, and it's, just, it's, it's a bad word. So people start scattering, and they get mad at us. And I said, hey, we're being totally forthright. We tell you exactly who we are, why we're here. So he starts harassing and yelling, and, and the local believers, they need to scatter, because if, if, if they get caught by this guy, he's going to really put pressure on them, and we try to get him kicked out of the country or whatever. So he starts walking with me. We're walking through this, this village, this, um, uh, this, this place with shops on either side, a little market. And I tell him, you stop yelling, I'll leave. As long as you're yelling, I'm staying. In other words, you're not going to intimidate me and get me out of here. Well, now a crowd begins to see what's going on with this guy yelling and screaming as we're walking. So I figured, I've got to use this for the gospel. I'm not going to leave because this guy's yelling and screaming and so on. So I just turn and begin to ask the people, you know, are, are you allowed to believe these things? Are you allowed? And they're like, yeah, yeah. In fact, one guy, as I'm trying to talk to him about Jesus, Yeshua, he says to me, did you vote for Trump? I said, yeah, I voted for Trump. He goes, we love Trump. Yes, Trump. It's like, gosh. That one, what a religious Jew, before he would talk to us about the Messiah, he said, the MAGA, yeah, make America great again. <laughs> Only in Israel, right? So next thing, I'm surrounded by all these ultra-Orthodox Jews. These men, black hats, long beards, black coats. Most of them spend all their day in study and prayer. And in their mind, the Jesus they know of has nothing to do with the Jesus of the New Testament. They don't know about him at all. The Jesus they know is some idol worshiper who deceived and misled Israel and brought them into destruction. The Jesus that they know is the founder of a religion that has persecuted their people for centuries. And in their mind, there's a straight line from the New Testament to the Holocaust. So when I, a Jew... Say, I believe in Jesus. That's, that's the worst thing a Jew could say. And one of them turns towards our camera guy, who's filming all this, and he starts yelling into the camera, we don't, in Hebrew, we don't believe in Jesus. And he spits on the floor. Because again, what he's thinking of is someone terrible, someone who never existed. And I remember, as I was standing in the midst of this crowd, maybe four or five guys, ultra-Orthodox Jews, or a little bit more than that around me, and then others in the background. I remember looking at this guy spitting on the ground, and I'm just, you know, a few inches from him. And I'm asking myself, I wonder how God's going to save people like this. I wonder all these Muslims getting radically saved. Some of our, our, our grads working as missionaries in the Muslim world with the most incredible, wild, amazing, glorious testimonies. I, I, I wonder how that's going to happen. I, I wonder how God's going to save these people. That's, that was my question. Because I'm so sure that God is going to do it. I was with some of our grads last night. They were talking about ministry in, in Haiti. Some of the folks from this church have been involved with them. And, and, and they're saying it was, it was one night the wife said, wouldn't it be cool if we just, you know, Acts 19 and they, they, they burn the books of witchcraft, if we just got to do something like that here? The next day, a witch doctor came to them at night, wanted them to know she had now put her faith in Jesus, was a believer, and wanted to go with them back to her temple and burn everything in the voodoo temple, and they went and did it that same night. Some years ago, there was this fad where people were getting online and recording videos, and they would, they would say in a mocking way, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says it's the unforgivable sin to blaspheme the Spirit. Even little children were being taught to do it. 
And I remember watching that as one after another, after another, after another. I wonder, I remember I said to myself, I wonder how many of these people years from now are going to become believers. And God will have mercy on them because they acted in ignorance and unbelief. One of the most famous atheists of the last generation, Anthony Flew, late in life, based on rational scientific evidence, changed his views and began to speak of the, the existence of God, the reality of God. Of course, all the other atheists said he lost his mind. But if he had a list of people that, that you think, ah, don't even bother praying, he would have been near the top of the list because he was so intellectual and he was so adamant, and yet God opens his heart. So Saul is on his way, full of anger, full of hatred, murderous intent. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Can you imagine the level of upheaval? Just that simple sentence, this, this encounter, he knows it's some type of divine heavenly being or God himself speaking to him. He knows the reality of this. He thinks he's doing God's work. He thinks he's doing God's will. He thinks he's pleasing God. He thinks he's being a zealous Jew. He thinks he's weeding out an evil movement. So he's persecuting people who deserve to be persecuted. And now this is some heavenly voice saying, why are you persecuting me? You see, nowadays, especially in America, we preach this watered-down gospel message, which is basically add Jesus into your life and your life will be even better. Remember the old slogan with Coca-Cola commercials, things go better with Coke? So the American gospel is basically things go better with Christ. You add a man, and your good life will be even better. You add a man, and the guilt and the shame disappear, and you'll prosper and be happy. That's not the gospel. And around much of the world, that message doesn't work. One Indian brother was saying, you know, in America, we preach come to Jesus. If you're having marital problems, he'll fix your marriage. Having problems with your family, he'll fix your family. Having problems on your job, he'll bless your job. And many times that happens. God works miraculously in a marriage, a family, a job that happens. He said, in India, we have to preach it differently. And say, if you come to Jesus and you're married, your spouse may leave you. If you come to Jesus and have a family, your family may disown you. If you come to Jesus and have a job, you may lose your job. The American mentality would be, well, then why would I come to Jesus? Because it's just a business deal, a business proposition. What's in it for me? The biblical gospel is we recognize we have sinned against God. We are guilty in his sight. Every one of us deserves judgment. But God in his mercy put the judgment on his son and offers us complete forgiveness, not only that, eternal life, and we become his children. And we leave everything joyfully with that message to follow him. Here I am. Send me. Use me. I was reading a post by a very well-known young Christian in America. And a lot of what he was saying in his post was really good about... God's grace in our lives and, and so on. But then he made this statement, Jesus is honored to know all your sins and faults. He's not honored to know our sins and faults. What an honor Jesus has to know all the junk in my life. In fact, why not get saved and he will be so honored. Jesus will be so honored if, if you would just let him into your heart. That would really make his day. It's what A.W. Tozer said many years ago, that the whole accept Christ mentality basically has him waiting outside. You know, the wife say, he's outside in the rain. It's cold. 
Will you open the door and let poor Jesus in? That's why we preach it. Do him a favor and let him in. It's got everything completely turned upside down. And, and, and this is what happens with, with Saul. Why do you persecute me? So he says, who are you, Lord? He's stunned. I, I'm doing God's work. I'm persecuting these terrible people. Now here's a voice from heaven saying, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. No! Everything in his life right now is turned upside down. Instead of working for God, I've been working against God. You know, it'd be like you give years and years and years and years and years and years of your life sacrificially to a certain cause to fight terrorism only to find out that you've actually been working for terrorists. No! But that's what happens when you get really saved. That everything turns upside down. It's the end of the old and the beginning of the new. And the reason that we have so much superficial Christianity in America today is because we have such superficial conversions. Because we don't have people having this radical encounter with God. Look, when, when you know that you owe him everything, and, and Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, just don't destroy me, I deserve destruction, and he forgives us. And he says, okay, now, leave your job, I'm sending you on the mission field to Uganda. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the privilege. As opposed to, What? I don't like the climate there. Send me somewhere else. When, when we do water baptisms in India, my friend Yusupadam asks the people as they're getting baptized, just the basics of the faith, do you believe this, do you believe this, yes, yes. And then he asks them in Telugu, which is the language of the state of Andhra, Andhra Pradesh, he asks them, are you willing to follow Jesus to your last breath to your last drop of blood, at baptism. And they say yes, and then he baptizes them. One colleague working in the Muslim world told me that before they baptize former Muslims, they go through profession of faith, and then they ask them two questions. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to die for Jesus? And if they don't say yes to both, they don't baptize them. And he was saying to me on my radio show, he said, think of what would happen to our church memberships if we had those questions. <laughs> okay, great. So we want to welcome you as a member to our church. Could you just, let's just go through a few things. So the reason you're coming to our church, you think the pastor's really funny. Okay, great, good. And, and parking is adequate. Okay, great. And the service is not too long. Excellent. And the children's program, the kids love, okay, excellent, good, good. We just have two last questions for you. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to die for Jesus? It's a very different message. I was speaking to a few hundred pastors, leaders, church planters in India one time, all, all Indians, all natives to that area. And I asked them, I said, how many of you have been physically attacked for your faith. Not verbally, but physically attacked or beaten for preaching the gospel. And I would say about three quarters of them raised their hands. But what was interesting was the way they did it. Like, and did I have breakfast this morning? Did I breathe the air today? It's like, of course. It was, no big, it was not only of course, but it was no big deal. That's what happens when you're a follower of Jesus in a Hindu country. That's what happens when you have Naxalites. That's what happens if you're part of a Muslim community in India. You're going to persecute it. That's just what comes with it. In fact, Jesus guarantees it. In this world, you'll have tribulation. He says to expect it. He says we're blessed. We're truly happy when people hate us and malign us and speak evil against us because of the gospel. 
I did a little Instagram video the other day. So my team said, hey, Dr. Bond, could you just do like a quick little Instagram video? Start, because we, we hadn't been active there before on social media, not too active. So I said, sure. So, you know, we'll record a few a week. So they said, okay, what's your idea today? Some of them will be fun or funny thing or a fitness thing just for fun. And some will be real serious. So I said, I got it. I got the idea for today. So they start the camera, and I start jumping up and down and shouting and celebrating. Woo! Yes! Yes! I, and the content of the video is, I just got maligned again. I just got mocked again. Someone just attacked me. Someone, you know, another death wish or something. Because that happens day and night on social media. You know, you get attacked and lied about and all that. So I was doing what Jesus said, leap for joy. So it is in Luke, leap for joy. Now somebody unfriends us on Facebook, and our world collapses. I mean, liter literally, there are brothers and sisters around the world today who are literally losing their heads for the gospel, and they won't back down. They know what it's going to cost them, and they don't back down, and they die a terrible death. We lose a friend on Facebook, and we're ready to quit. I don't know if it's really worth it anymore. When you really understand the depth of our sin and guilt before God, the degree to which our behavior outside of him is damnable, and then how much grace he has, how much mercy he has, how much goodness he has. I mean, think of this. This man, this murderer, God uses to write half of the New Testament. God so inspires him that the words he writes become God's words. And around the world, in hundreds of languages, people study his words as God's words and memorize his words as God's words. And yet here he was, a murderous persecutor of believers. You see, when he recognized his guilt and recognized his Savior and Lord, and that's it. Here I am. Send me. Use me. Another India story. It was our second trip. And we had a team of 10 people total from the States. Eight Americans and two Indian Americans. And it was a rigorous, intense trip. It was city to city. Traveled through the night. Super hot days, people getting sick from the food and the conditions. And we were in one city, and we just weren't breaking through. I had been there the year before. We had powerful meetings, but things just seemed stuck. We weren't breaking through. So I got the team before the night service. I was teaching leaders in the day. They were going out in villages doing evangelism with translators. And I said, hey, listen, I, I know some of you have been sick. I, I know it's hot. I, I know it's a rough schedule. But could, could we just fast for 24 hours? Just, we'll have dinner tonight after the service, but no breakfast, no lunch. Have liquids if you need them while you're out. But, and then we'll, we'll eat after the service tomorrow. Would, would that be okay? I, mean, I was very pastoral. I was very gentle. I knew it was a challenging trip. So would that be okay? It's 24 hours. So, and, and, and then we'll, we'll go back to normal schedule. Can we do that just because we've got a breakthrough in the city? Can we do that? And they all, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Great. So I tell Yesu Padam, I said, hey, listen, brother, we feel we need to fast for a breakthrough. So, so no breakfast, no lunch for the team tomorrow. We'll just eat after the service tomorrow night. He goes, that's a great idea. And he turns to his team, a whole bunch of his workers, and he goes, no food until we break through. And they just nod. I'm thinking with my team. It's like, hey, I know you're hot, difficult, all, you know, make it. It's, 20, it's 24 hours, and, you know, we could do that. He just looks at this dude. No food till we break through. Okay. There's nothing. There's no emotion. We're disciples. Okay, that's what we need to do. We do it. And, and a lot of this goes back to how we got saved or to our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of what it means to be a servant of God. Kind of look at it, if you've ever seen the, the end of a game in the NBA, end of a basketball game, and they, they got to draw up a, a play, and the coach has his board. 
Okay, so you're, you're going to pass the ball. Okay, you're going to set a pick. Okay, you're, you're going to rush this way. You're going to go this way. And they just not. You, okay, what's my role? Maybe you're the fifth one. Okay, coach, what do I do? Okay, you go over here. The way it is with Jesus, okay, I'm sending you here, you'll be martyred. I'm sending you here, you'll be in prison. So, okay, okay. And the attitude in the church that's been birthed in suffering is such that one of my friends was, had a friend in China, and he went to a house meeting, and different people were sharing their testimonies. And they were, someone had just gotten out of prison, been in prison five years, been in prison ten years for the gospel. And, and others began to weep. And the friend asked the translator, why are they weeping? What are they saying? And they're saying, Lord, why did they have the privilege of going to prison for you and not me? <laughs> A friend working in Vietnam told me that when they ordained people to ministry, before you can be ordained, you've had to planted X number of churches and been in prison X number of years. It was just normal life. Now listen, th thank God for the liberty that we have here. There are real attacks on our freedoms in America, but we have all kinds of liberty that much of the church in history hasn't had or much of the church around the world doesn't have. I'm not saying to feel guilty that you're not persecuted. I don't feel guilty that I go home and sleep in a nice bed. I, I don't lay on the floor because I feel guilty. I, I don't try to hurt myself or whip myself or... No, I, I rejoice in the goodness of God and the freedoms that we have and the blessings that we have and the prosperity that we have in America. I thank God for it and seek to use it for the gospel. But somehow, there's got to be some type of internal toughness. There has to be some type of internal resolve. And maybe you didn't have a radical conversion experience. Maybe you think, like, I've always believed in Jesus. That's fine. That's wonderful. But find out what it really means to be one of his disciples. Find out what it really means to be a child of God. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Oh, how that rocked his world. Everything completely turned upside down. The Lord from heaven is saying, you're persecuting me. Thomas Watson said centuries ago that the, the body being hurt, the head cried out. The body of Christ being hurt, the head says, why are you persecuting me? Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Why? Because he's the Lord. He doesn't make deals with us. I've been saved almost 50 years now. He's never once come and asked for my opinion. He's never said, okay, listen, Mike, we have a few options. Tell me how you feel about these. Be a famous TV preacher, rich businessman, or a martyr. Which would you like? No, I, it's obey or disobey. And the reason some of us have never really heard God call us to service is because we serve at such a distance that either we would not hear his voice calling us to service, or if he did call us to service, we'd reject it. One colleague was going through a really difficult trial and kept rebuking Satan, rebuking Satan, rebuking Satan, rebuking Satan. And one day the Lord said to him, you and I would get along a lot better if you quit calling me Satan. <laughs> if the Holy Spirit called us to service, some of us would rebuke the devil. That's not God. No negotiation. And obviously, Jesus knows Saul's heart. He was acting in ignorance and unbelief. He really did want to do the will of God. And when he understood what it was, yes, sir. Yes, sir. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. So this is all part of this devastating transformation experience. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Why would he? Who's even thinking about that? His whole world turned upside down. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. Hananiah. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! 
Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. That's how he starts. That's what he's doing for three days. He's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and before, before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Isn't that interesting? Right out of the gate, this is what's going to cost you. This is what you're going to experience. You know what? I think I'll uh, take option B instead. There is no option. Option B is disobedience. Option B is no, Lord. I refuse to obey you. Then Ananias went to the house, entered it, placed his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, isn't that amazing? The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And by the way, when it speaks of baptism, there were, there were Jewish water rites, immersion rites. This was not a later Christian practice. This was something that Jews did, so it's, it's a new beginning, or a washing, a cleansing. And then he goes out from there, begins preaching in the synagogue, and people are shocked. The guy who's so opposed, the guy who was our worst enemy, is now a believer. Wow. I, I want to encourage you, once again, to look at your own life, and not to compare yourself to Saul, because no one here was doing what he was doing at that same level. Even if you opposed the faith, even if in high school you used to mock other Christians, you, you weren't doing what he did. But to look at his life and to ask him, do you understand that you belong to Jesus just as much as him? That you are under the Lord's marching orders just as much as him? That... that as we come and surrender our lives to the Lord, that he, he actually takes us seriously. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, you're bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Nothing we have belongs to us anymore. It all belongs to him. He could say to any of us, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and follow me. And he has every right to do it. Or he could say to you, I'm going to put you in the public eye as the richest person in America, and you'll take my testimony around. He, whatever he wants, it's his call. It's his will. We had one of our grads several years ago killed in the Middle East. I can't say what country it was because we still have people working in that country. But he went with three other couples, he and his wife and two little boys, four couples went into the Middle East into a very difficult, violent area. It was a religious Muslim area, but Al-Qaeda was attacking them. There was war among the Muslims. And these folks just went in there and served and, and loved and cared for the people taught them in various ways, and then in private would share the gospel with those who were open. And God was really using them to make a difference. And one day, the young man sat his wife down and said to her, if I die, I want you to remarry. And she said, I don't want to have that conversation. No, I, I want you to know that. I want you to know that. Well, he's on his way to the center where they would teach vocational training for the local Muslims, a very poor community. And Al-Qaeda terrorists come by on a motorcycle, one guy riding the other guy with a gun and kill him. So we get word, it's a Sunday morning, I remember getting up, I was going to be preaching at my home congregation, and I get word that he's just been, he's just been martyred. Of course, he, I remember when, when he and his wife 
drove me to the airport once. They just wanted to spend a little time with me, so they were driving me to the airport when they were still in our school. And I said, so what do you feel the Lord's calling you to? And they said, we feel we're supposed to do evangelism to the Muslims in the Middle East. And I thought, that's, that's quite a calling. It's a lot of challenges. I didn't want to discourage them, but I thought, that's, that's very serious. And there's such a sweet young couple wondering, is it really going to happen? How's it going to happen? So it's, it's some, it takes some time before we can get the body out of the country, back for a funeral and, and all of this. And finally, he's back in the States. And the day of the funeral, I, I speak to his wife. And then some months later, spoke with her. But the answer was the same. I mean, here, you're, you're watching the, the little boys at the coffin. Goodbye, Daddy. I miss you. It's like, oh, gosh, tearing your heart out. And I asked her afterwards, I said, if you knew everything that was going to happen when you met him, when you got married, you went to the school, one of the mission, if you knew everything that was going to happen, would you have done things differently? Do you have any regrets? And she looked at me with a smile. She said, no regrets. And it's for the gospel. It's for souls. You think, are you trying to lay a guilt trip on me, Dr. Brown, because we're not getting martyred here? No, 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 quite the contrary. I'm saying if, if that can be normal life for a fellow brother and sister, here in America where we live, what should our lives look like? What should our consecration look like? What should our dedication look like? I don't want to lay a guilt trip on you if you're not suffering, and I'm not telling you to look for suffering. Don't try to provoke an attack. I'm going to get, Mom, I'm going to get martyred today. What do you mean? Well, I'm going to go in this area. No, no, don't, don't go into the bar, some local bar tonight, stand on the table, start kicking drinks over. So let's all repent and go to hell, and I won't see you there until someone gets into a fist fight. For you. That's not persecution for the gospel. That's just foolishness. We should be known for our service. We should be known for graciousness. We should be known for kindness. We should be known for, for being hard workers and long-suffering and good neighbors. We should be known for all of that, but friends, it's, it's time that we take clear stands for Jesus. It's time that we ask ourselves, am I ashamed of the gospel? It's time we, we ask, have I really gone for it? Have I ever really found out what it would mean to be a disciple? Have I sat down with my spouse if I'm married and said, well, let's just pray together and afresh say, Lord, we're yours. Whatever that means. He may, he may bless you in America for the next 30 years. He may cause you to want to be a political leader and everybody knows your name. Or he may call you to die in obscurity in a prison on the mission field. Lord, here I am. Send me, use me. Pray with your kids. Lord, whatever your purpose is, not our dream for them, not our plan, but yours. Let, let's consecrate our lives afresh. When we look at an example like this, it, it speaks to us. It's not just telling us about Saul. It's a message for us. And I'm sure next week as your pastor goes through things line by line, verse by verse, there'll be a thousand other points that come out. This is what I want to share with you today. Father, search our hearts today. Call us to examine our lives and ask that famous question, are the things we are living for worth Christ dying for? Make us, Lord, into true disciples, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord.